Welcome to Fringe with Benefits. Stacy here, your favorite survivalist, the one who's not afraid to be transparent and honest, the one who likes to talk about the crazy stuff, the one who's not too paranoid to discuss the most fringe and insane stuff. You know how people say, well, I don't want to talk about that. I don't like to think about stuff like that. Yeah, that's not me. I am the one who is willing to sit in the discomfort with you for a while. So I come to you to scramble your brain on all things anomalous, peculiar, weird, and abnormal. Let's knock out the business, shall we? Contact me on social media. Go visit and follow the Fringe with Benefits Facebook page. And while you're there, go find Inward Survival's Facebook page. Lots of great positive wellness content there. For all things Naked and Afraid and about me, go visit Facebook fan page at Stacy Leo Sorio. Be sure to visit the show's Twitter at Stacy Fringe. Instagram is at Golden underscore Valkyrie underscore. That's my observing account. I don't really post a whole lot lately. I really do not want to interact lately. But I will with you if you come find me. YouTube is at Golden Valkyrification. Rumble and BitChute is Golden Valkyrie. If you aren't using these platforms, I highly suggest you go see if you'd like to. Parlay and Minds is at Golden Valkyrie. MeWe is Stacy McCauley. And Gab is Golden underscore Valkyrie. Go to subscribe to the Fringe with Benefits Telegram channel if you're looking for strange and fringy information. And that's, that's where it's at, really. And please visit InwardSurvival.com for more information on me and the nonprofit. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, go give me a rating and review. I love five stars, but I'll take any review, really. And if you write out a review, I'll read it on the show. Please share the show, but always consider the disclaimer. I am not for everybody, and some may be upset and offended by my opinions and chosen content. I prefer my audience enjoy what I'm delivering, but I do expect to get some hate now and again. Go visit the Fringe with Benefits Anchor homepage linked below and click the support the show button. There are options for a monthly contribution for the show. Now that we have a Patreon, it's called, you guessed it, Fringe with Benefits. I'm not charging for content, but I may not have a clear understanding of how it actually works. I'm trying over here, (laughs) but I think you're supposed to charge for content. So I'm not really sure how to promote that yet, but I guess I'll figure it out. I am doing more than try. I'm actually doing it. So, you know, yay me. And thank you again to our subscribers. I'm so appreciative for your support since almost day one, pretty much. And remember, if you support the show, you support Inward Survival. The accountability segment is basically a time where I come to you and we reflect on the last week and the last episode and what is going on in our lives about last week, I was unable to link all the sources for Stacy's socials. I'm sure nobody noticed, but you could have. You could have been like, where are all the links? I only have space for so many characters in that description box. Therefore, sometimes it'll happen and I will have to get rid of some stuff. So anything I talk about can be searched on DuckDuckGo or Nibiru or Google if you must. But remember and beware that the control of information is very much in force. I suggest using a smaller, more freedom-associated search engine than the big boys, or just some sound advice would be to search in a variety of browsers to see what you come up with. So that's that's my advice, unsolicited, but in relation to the fact that I forgot to, well, I didn't forget. I didn't post links for Stacy's socials because my weekly topic took up all the description box. Next is 
last week, Stacy Socials also featured a story or video of a woman who was attacked and sexually assaulted on the street. I simply stated that she should have done something. I'm not saying I was blaming the victim. I clearly am not. But I should have given more details about the aspect of self-defense called situational awareness and the importance of running away before they get close enough to physically grab you. This is so easy and can happen to anyone. I neglected to share about my experience when this was done to me in seventh grade. Another student did it to me after school. I was super afraid to tell anyone, but I did anyways. I told my mom. Based on my observations, the kid that did it to me had a terrible home life and was a deeply disturbed person. And it doesn't excuse him, but it does give the victim a reason as to why this behavior is something that occurs. I felt bad about telling my mom, and my mom complained to the school, and I felt horrible because I had to see him afterwards. And shoot, I even rode the bus with him. I wish I would have had some self-defense experience so I could have just like jiu-jitsued him into a little knot. Nonetheless, this event has deeply affected me in several ways and physical assault, sexual or not, is a hurtful experience and I have compassion for those that this has happened to. So let's keep ourselves safe and keep our eyes open for others around us who may be victims or perpetrators. It is up to us to make our communities safer. And next, I do have a little surprise for everyone next week. I am working with a marketing team, and we may have some sponsors. I never thought this little hobby would become something bigger, but I imagine that people are starving for realness. So if this can reach, if this um, tool can help reach more people, then maybe it'll be a good thing. Next, I want to ask for prayers for a fellow Naked and Afraid alumni. I think it's Naked and Afraid XL4 she was on they were in this south china sea i believe i probably got that wrong but angela hammer was in a head-on collision and by the grace of god she survived but has some serious injuries may her recovery and healing be quick i swear that this is one of my worst fears and keep an eye on the cars coming in in the opposite direction there have been many cases of people looking down for just a second and hitting someone head-on And there are even several awful scenarios where people who are suicidal will use this method to take their own lives. This can and does destroy lives. Everyone be safe on the road. You just, you never know. And sometimes you just, you can't get out of it. You just have to brace for impact. And a lot of times people just don't make it. So let's pray for Angela. She looks, she's tough as hell and she is doing great. (laughs) Among all the insane things I've seen online this week, in the news, you know, the left and the right, and everything in between, because I, I look at all of it. And uh, so these are the ones that I picked out that were informative, yet lighthearted, but I don't know. I don't know. These are the ones that I picked. The first one is from the Babylon Bee. This, it's a kind of a funny, satirical website that scoffs at some ridiculousness. It is titled, The Seven Clear Ways to Scare Off Biden's Door-to-Door Vaccine Evangelists. One, answer the door while casually cleaning your AR-15. Greetings, agent of the government. What can I do for you today? Number two, wear a MAGA hat. Works every time. Number three, sneeze violently and say you're starting to lose your sense of taste. Does this apple taste like anything to you? Everything is starting to taste bland to me. (laughs) Number four, smear sacrificial ice cream on your doorpost to appease Biden. It worked for the Israelites. Five, show them your fully assembled Lego Capitol building set. 
A true sign that you're a deranged terrorist. They'll run away screaming. (laughs) Six, smile and offer to shake their hand. Nothing scares the pro-science crowd like interacting like a normal human being. That's probably what I'm going to do. That's the one that I'm going to go for. Um, Number seven, if all else fails, release the hounds. Hopefully you've had your release the hounds button installed already. And so their disclaimer is the Babylon Bee is not responsible for any death, dismemberment, or imprisonment by a re-education camp resulting from these techniques. (laughs) Pretty freaking funny. Sorry, my dogs are freaking out. I got to take a little break. Okay, it wasn't, it wasn't the, you know, the you know who they weren't at my door the evangelists were not at my door the door-to-door jab evangelists it wasn't them hello friends (laughs) the next one is 23 high-ranking officials in biden administration came from the same shadowy firm this is a pretty interesting report haven't heard this before probably a first time for you founded in 2017 west exec describes itself as a diverse group of senior national security professionals with the most recent experience at the highest levels of the U.S. government. With deep knowledge and networks in the fields of defense, foreign policy, intelligence, cybersecurity, international economics, and strategic communications, our team has worked together around the White House Situation Room table, deliberating and deciding our nation's foreign and national security policies. At least we can rest easy that it hasn't been President Joe Biden who's been calling all the shots, but a closer look at West Exec advisors find that the manages that it manages portfolios for some of the biggest companies in the world, drawing concerns about private companies co-opting US security and intelligence policies. However, West Exec does not publicly disclose the names of its clients, only describing them in broad terms. Quote the insularity of this network of policymakers poses concerns about the potential for groupthink, conflicts of interest, and what can only be called, however oxymoronically, legalized corruption. End quote. The Intercept American Prospect noted on West Exec's influence. Quote, the private sector can in essence co-opt the public sector. End quote. West Exec has staffed the administration with over 23 of its executives who have sprawled out across the national security intelligence apparatus. These are deep state military industrial complex weirdos right here. The Intercept and the American Prospect dug into these profiles and some of the biggest names in government are among them, including... So here's a long list of people. I don't know if I'm going to read them. The link's below. You can check that out. But you've got Tony Blinken, who's the U.S. Secretary of State. We've got the Director of National Intelligence. We've got the Deputy Director at the CIA, Deputy Attorney General, National Cyber Director, SAC Attack, White House Press Secretary, Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Indo-Pacific Security Affairs, National Security Director for USAID, Senior advisor to the USAID admin. The list goes on and on. I'm not going to read them all, but you know what I'm talking about. It says that there are even more mid-tier positions throughout the administration. Biden world's back ventures are entangled in the firm. The Intercept American Prospect report states the Biden-Harris transition team was advised by West Exec consultants. The firm members oversee influential nonpartisan federal commissions. 
That makes for at least 30 executives from one shadowy firm that has spread its tentacles around a single presidential administration. If that isn't a takeover of the U.S. government, then what is? That's what the article says. Interesting little little note. Okay, next. Next, I thought it was weird. Next is a weird piece of news. It's MSN.com, so as mainstream as you can get. It says a lightning strike killed at least 11 people and injured many more in the northern city of Jaipur on Sunday. I believe this is in India. The victims were taking selfies on, in the rain atop a watchtower at the 12th century Amir Fort, a popular tourist attraction. I have not verified all this, folks. I, I was actually kind of skeptical that it actually happened, but maybe we can verify it later. Just let's continue. It says 27 people were on the tower and the wall of the fort when the incident happened, and some of them reportedly jumped to the ground. Lightning strikes have been killing 2,000 Indians on average since 2004. A senior police officer told the media that the tower was a popular spot in the fort, adding that most of the people among the dead were young. Sunday alone saw nine more deaths from lightning strikes reported across the Indian Meteorological Department, IMD, has said that deaths by lightning strikes have doubled in the country since the 1960s. One of the reasons they cited was climate crisis. The data says that lightning incidents have increased by 30 to 40 percent since the early mid to mid 1990s. In 2018, the southern Indian state of Andhra Pradesh recorded 36,749 lightning strikes in just 13 hours. I want to bring up a video from Amazing Polly. She just talked about this insane town caught on fire in Canada. I'm not sure which province. Whole town burnt down really bad. They were speculating whether or not it was a train versus lightning strikes. She was going over some of the meteorological data about the lightning strikes in the area at the time. They had over 700 and something thousand lightning strikes in a certain window of time, a very short window of time. Very similar to this. Officials say they are more common in areas with thinner tree cover, leaving people vulnerable to being struck. Well, that's absolutely true. There are some safety tips. When you're out in a storm, you do need to be mindful of lightning. So seek shelter inside a large building or a car. Get out of wide open spaces and away from exposed hilltops. So if these kids were actually out there doing this, then somebody should have told them that. If you have nowhere to shelter, make yourself as small a target as possible by crouching down with your feet together, hands and knees and head tucked in. That way the lightning will not travel throughout your entire body. Maybe it'll just go in and out. Do not shelter beneath tall or isolated trees. And if you are on water, get to the shore and off wide open beaches as quickly as possible. That's what, that's what the MSN safety note said. A lot of those are good. Definitely be mindful of that. But the, what I wanted to point out in here was that they're like, holy crap, a ton of people were killed by a lightning strike. And this is how much more lightning there is because of the climate crisis. And so everybody better be afraid. The next one is a very concerning article. This kind of had my heart pumping this week. I was like, oh no, oh no, we're not doing that. You're not calling the police on your own citizens, are you? The Biden invites the United Nations to investigate America's systemic racism by Spencer Brown in townhall.com. It says that the U.S. State Department, helmed by Secretary Antony Blinken, announced Tuesday that the Biden administration, real quick, 
Let's check and see if Antony Blinken is on that list of shadowy firm members. A quick little look. Oh, Tony Blinken, U.S. Secretary of State, co-founder and managing partner of WestExec. Thanks, WestExec, for calling the U.N. on us. Anyways, let's continue. That fucker announced Tuesday that the Biden administration is going to invite the United Nations officials to investigate racism and human rights issues to visit the United States and tell Americans and the rest of the world how racist our country is. The invitation comes after last month's UN report on racism and police brutality that called for global reparations based on several incidents, including the death of George Floyd in 2020. Calling it leading by example, Secretary of State Blinken said in a statement that the invitation is proof the Biden administration is deeply dedicated to addressing racial injustice and inequities at home and abroad. Now we get some opposing view from Senator Josh Hawley, Senator Josh Hawley, Republican Missouri, questioned the Biden administration's priorities as the timing of the invitation to the United Nations investigators. Maybe the president should devote some energy to investigating the origins of, you know what, COVID-19, he tweeted. Town Hall has previously covered the United Nations and its Human Rights Council that has a record of tolerating nations and leaders that deny their citizens human rights. So why are they policing people on human rights when they have a record for allowing these dictatorships to maim and destroy their own people. This includes Venezuela, China, Cuba, and Saudi Arabia. They've all been legitimized by the UN as members of bodies dedicated supposedly to human rights. Next, I don't have an article to go along with this, but I've been hearing word, and there is articles out there that the UK is suffering from some food shortages, and they're saying it's attributed to a lack of drivers, and so they've been making accommodations for certain regulations, allowing them to have longer drive time to meet the demands. But there are people that are saying, farmers, people, the, you know, the small business owners that, that we come to for our food, are saying that the government is actually making them lock away food storages, if not taking the food and locking it away, and allowing spoilages and that the driver thing is just a false flag to create a crisis. Another crisis created. So we suffer. And so they can make money. And so they can try to come in like Captain Save-A-Ho and save us. We don't need it. We don't need a Captain Save-A-Ho. Okay? That's all I got for Stacy Socials. Let's move on. Mailbag. Send me your mail at fringewithbenefits at protonmail.com. I look forward to reading your stories. The story I am going to share with you today is a story of survival, a survival of a predator, and it's a crazy story. See the link below. Nobody messaged me this. I'm still waiting on your guys' mail. Okay, Lisa McVeigh had a tumultuous start to her life. Her mother was an alcoholic and drug addict who ended up living on the streets. When Lisa was just 14 years old, she was sent to live with her grandmother and her grandmother's boyfriend where she was subjected to sexual and emotional abuse at his hands. At 17, Lisa decided life wasn't worth living, and she made the decision that she was going to end her life. On the 3rd of November in 1984, Lisa left her job at a donut shop in Tampa, Florida. She started to ride her bike home. She decided this, she, this was the night she was going to take her life. This is crazy. She actually had her suicide note written. There were different plans for Lisa that night that would be a chance encounter with a sadistic serial killer that would give her the determination to live. 
So she's riding her bike at home. A car drives up behind her, honks at her several times to get her attention. She decided to ignore the car. You know, I could actually feel what she's feeling at that moment. That's fucking scary. That has happened to me before. Car's following you. Your heart just starts pounding and you're like, got to get away, got to get away. So she ignores them and she just keeps going, but I'm sure that her heart was freaking pounding. She couldn't hear the car any longer. It sounded like he had gone away, but she turned around expecting to see it, it. It had driven off, but the car was now parked at the side of the road. And that instant she was dragged from her bike because a gun was pointed at her head and that man forced her into the car. He drove her to his apartment where he raped her. And while Lisa had been planning on going home to end her own life, she said that the only thought running through her mind throughout the ordeal was that she wasn't ready to die and she wanted to live. She said, I was deathly afraid that he was going to kill me. Lisa didn't know, but the man who had abducted her was Bobby Joe Long. He had already murdered at least 10 women along the strip of Tampa. Of course, she was determined to survive, and she knew she had to earn his trust. So she started to speak to him as though he were her friend, asking him what had happened in his life to make him want to hurt her. He complained that he had gone through a bitter breakup and was taking revenge on women. She told him that she would have been proud to be his girlfriend and that he was just misunderstood. She opened up in a bid to save her life and told him that she was an only child and that her father was sick. After 26 hours, Long decided he would let her live, and when he released me and drove off, I took off my blindfold and saw this amazing oak tree. I had wanted to die before, and now I wanted to live. She felt as though she, she had been given a new lease on life. I've got a second chance at life, she said. When Long let Lisa go, she managed to catch a glimpse of his face and gave a detailed description to the cops. They identified him, apprehended him. Following his arrest, she, he confessed to 10 murders and 50 rapes across the state of Florida, Florida and received a death sentence. In 2019, that death sentence was carried out and Lisa who was now a county sheriff's deputy for Hillsborough, was at the front row of the execution witnesses. Hell to the yes. Those are the kind of the mailbag stories that I want, but I could, you know, understand if you guys don't have a story like that. <laughs> Next week, I'll have something bitching for you, unless somebody sends me your mail. Fringe with benefits at protonmail.com. <laughs> Our weekly topic this week is going to be a cornucopia of things. First, we're going to talk about this website called Badass of the Week, and I picked someone, and I think I'm going to do this maybe every week. I don't know, but I think it's a great idea. So this dude is Harrison O'Keene. This is a pretty long story, so let's try to get through it. I highly recommend you go visit this website. It's very nicely done, and if you like to read and you like to read stories like this, this is the place to go. At 5 a.m. on the frigid, rain-swept morning of Sunday, May 26, 2013, a tugboat, the Jeskon 4, bobbed through the black waters off the coast of Nigeria, dutifully carrying out a vital mission to secure a massive, several-hundred-foot-long oil tanker ship packed to the brim with gasoline that had been just extracted from the nearby Chevron oil platform, part of a $3 billion industry that extracts 238,000 gallons of crude from the ocean depths every year. 
The hulking tanker was being thrown about by the massive ocean swells, crushing waves, and a relentless, battering rainstorm that had no end in sight. And the small, ultra-powerful Jascon 4 had been called in to fix a line to her and keep her from capsizing, releasing thousands of gallons of petroleum into the ocean and watching helplessly in horror as Mother Nature proved that a thousand-ton ship packed with millions of dollars of fuel is no match for the full fury of the Earth herself. Could you imagine that kind of responsibility? Could you imagine being on that little freaking Jess gone for? Holy hell. We're going to continue. Of course, it was just another morning in the life of 29-year-old Harrison O'Keene, the Nigerian-born ship's cook aboard the Jascon 4. O'Keene went on missions like this all the time, knowing that a dangerous situation's high seas and the consequent, constant risk of being blown up in a gigantic, painful, gal- gigantic, painful gal- gasoline explosion were all just part of the job description. As long as his pounded yam foo-foo recipe came out all right and the captain didn't end up puking his guts out from food poisoning, everything was going to be whatever the Nigerian version of kosher is. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. Okin had just woken up and he stabilized himself along the bulkheads as he headed for his morning trip to the John before getting ready to put on some breakfast for the other 11 crew members aboard the tug. Still in his underwear, the ship's cook was sleepy, probably a little seasick, and most likely just feeling the way most people feel when they have to get up at friggin' 5 a.m. on a Sunday to go to work. Completely blissfully unaware that he was about five minutes away from being abruptly thrown face first into a horrific death trap so cruel and unusual that if a dungeon master threw it at his D&D party, they'd all kick his ass on the spot. Man, this writer's got it down. He says, you see no longer... No sooner had O'Keen sat down on the can than a ridiculously huge wave smashed hard into the side of Jascon 4, spraying sheets of water across the rain-hammered deck, cracking a piece of the hull, and flipping the tug over on her side. Honestly, of all the places to be when your ship flips up down and begins to capsize and sink to the bottom of the ocean, sitting on the toilet at 5 in the morning has to be among the worst. O'Keen, thrown so hard by the awesome crushing power of Poseidon's fury that he flew all the way out of his bathroom stall in a scene that probably would have been hilarious to watch if it wasn't one of the most completely, utterly terrifying things that you could possibly imagine. He jumped to his feet, pulled up his drawers, and rushed out of the men's room. He entered the hallway into the bowels of the ship and instinctively began sprinting for the emergency hatch where three of his crewmates were already preparing to seal off. Before he got there, a torrential wall of rushing, freezing water came seemingly out of nowhere, slamming into the three men and carrying them off into the abyss. It was so gruesome to watch that Harrison O'Keen immediately knew that all three sailors were dead on impact. Oh but there was no time to think. O'Keen, trapped below the decks with his only possible avenue of escape, blocked by deadly rushing water. The Nigerian cook fought against the mighty current of water flooding into the passageway, muscling himself through another bulkhead into the ship's officers' cabins. The wash- water continued to rush in, forcing O'Keen back into the bathroom that adjoined the captain's room, hurling him up against the wall as the entire tugboat continually pounded with waves and taking on an unsustainable amount of water terrifyingly rolled upside down and began to slowly sink towards the bottom of the sea. Only somehow, Harrison didn't drown. The ship's cook, swimming up towards the ceiling of the cabin, which had originally been the floor before the whole thing got turned upside down, he found himself caught in a pitch-dark four-foot bubble of breathable air. Hanging on to the base of the overturned sink, the cook held his head above water, breathing normally, sweating balls as if he felt the, as he felt the Jaskon 4 inexorably sink further and further into the depths of the Atlantic Ocean. 
finally coming to rest on the ocean floor after what seemed like ages he was trapped. Buried alive in a watery grave, Harrison O'Keen, ship's cook on the tugboat Jaskon 4, was now stuck in his underwear in the total darkness of a tiny bubble of air, locked in an upside-down ship resting on the ocean floor, a hundred feet below the frozen depths of the Atlantic. He was treading water, using his strength to hold his head above the water. He tried to maintain his breathing to preserve his oxygen. He was completely exposed to the freezing cold salt water. No food, no light, no drinkable water, limited oxygen, and no hope of a timely rescue. He is the sole survivor of the crew. He resigned himself to his fate, but stubbornly and resolutely refused to give up for any reason whatsoever. He was going to ride this out, ride this out and fight for his life until the murky waters of the Atlantic or the excessive amounts of the carbon dioxide finally asphyxiated him and laid him to rest. The Nigerian rescue crews received the mayday from the Jaskon 4, but with the storm raging and the rapidity from which the vessel plummeted to the sea, there was no chance of mounting a timely rescue operation. Even once the weather cleared later that day, it was still the relatively noticeable problem that the ship was upside down, a major set of hazards for anyone brave enough to attempt swimming inside of the vessel. And that it was, you know, like nine stories down underwater and even highly trained professional scuba divers aren't recommended to remain at that depth. Roughly, it says roughly 30 meters or 100 feet for more than 20 minutes at a time. It's too dangerous even for rescue swimmers. So here he is down there in his underwear. He was down there for 60 hours. Starving, freezing, and with salt water peeling the skin off of his tongue and body, his body pruning up like a raisin, holding on to an overturned wash basin, somehow kept his wits about him and refused to give up. Realizing he needed to get out of the water and rest, O'Keen used the last bit of his strength to make several trips holding his breath and swimming into the adjoining officer's cabin where he felt around in the darkness trying to avoid a host of dangerous things. He swam back carrying any kind of wooden objects he could feel around and locate. After a few trips like this, he was able to fashion a kind of a small raft. It was enough for him to get his body out of the water and attempt to warm up the rest as he lay there reviewing the course of his life until this point. The only sounds that reached his ears were his own breath slowly killing him, the gentle lapping of water against the sides of the cabin, and the horrific sound of his dead crew members being eaten by fish and other unseen aquatic creatures. He stayed there like that for three days. Eventually, a team of South African rescue divers were brought in to check out the wreckage. Swimming through the depths in full gear and underwater flashlights, the divers found the bodies of 10 crew members and then headed into the ship to investigate. When he heard, when Harrison O'Keen heard a metallic tapping coming from somewhere in the ship, he nearly crapped a brick. Knowing he was working on the last of his oxygen, he leapt from his raft, dove down into the inky black waters, and ripped the faucet from the sink. Pulling himself back up, he began to slam the faucet against the ceiling as hard as he could, trying to call to the divers before they abandoned him to his fate once again. Hoping that by entering the ship, these dudes didn't upset whatever delicate physics things was going on in there. Flood his cabin with water and trap him 30 meters underwater without any air. Minutes later, he saw a flashlight lead down the hallway. It was the first light he'd seen in three days. He tapped the diver as he swam by, marginally concerned that the South African dude didn't freak the hell out, think he was being mauled by something in Deep Star 6 or Leviathan, and shank the hell out of him with a jackknife or a harpoon or something. But even though he startled the dude, he nearly jumped out of his wetsuit. O'Keen wasn't greeted with a stab to the gut. Finally, at 7.30 p.m. on May 28th, 62 hours after his boat flip, Harrison O'Keen, exhausted, starving, and dangerously dehydrated, 
was equipped with a rebreather and oxygen tank. He used the last ounces of his strength to swim out from the wreckage. But his journey wasn't over yet. He had been down there for so long, he'd sucked up so much nitrogen into his lungs that bringing him straight to the surface would have killed him immediately. He needed to spend the next 60 hours in a decompression chamber. Could you imagine? Harrison O'Keene, having gone through an claustrophobic person's worst nightmare, was finally released to the hospital on June 1st and only just was cleared to go home earlier this week. His 62-hour ordeal trapped in his underwear in a bathroom 100 feet below the ocean surface is believed to be the longest any human being has ever survived after being trapped underwater. Crazy story. I had to tell that because there is no limits to what our perseverance and fortitude can do. You would have thought he would have given up a long time ago, but nope, he didn't, and he made it through. And kudos to those divers for going out there to find him. The next thing I thought was, you know, I was thinking about something strange today or this week. And I was like, man, shrunken heads. They don't really talk about shrunken heads anymore. That fascinates me. How do they shrink the heads? You know? And who was it that came up with this idea? And so I pulled a couple articles regarding shrunken heads. Now let's get into it. Tribes began creating shrunken heads centuries ago out of fear that after killing someone in battle or during a raid, that person's spirit, Musak, would come back and kill them. To prevent any such paranormal activities, the Javaro would shrink the heads of the people they just killed. Each of these shrunken heads was known as a tonsa, and they were often worn on necklaces. Could you imagine rolling around with little, little itty-bitty shrunken heads? Remember that scene on Beetlejuice with the guy in the waiting room with a tiny shrunken head? And then the headhunter next to him? <laughs> It says, aside from using a tonsa to prevent vengeance from beyond the grave, the Javaro would create shrunken heads as trophies of revenge against tribes that had wronged their ancestors. Furthermore, a tonsa was not a so subtle warning to others not to mess with them, lest your head also end up on a necklace. The actual process of creating shrunken heads in the first place is almost as unusual as the final result. After some poor tribesmen were decapitated, either white dead or alive, the end result was the same. The Javaro took their heads, sewed their eyelids shut, sealed their mouths with wooden pegs. The heads were then tossed into a big pot and boiled for as long as two hours, by which time it would be about one-third as large as it had been, if not smaller. The Javaro would then skin the head, turn the skin inside out, and sew the skin back onto the head. Why? Remains unclear. Finally, hot stones and sand would be inserted into the head to make it contract even more. Once the head had contracted, more hot stones would be applied to the outside to heat the face enough to seal its shape. Once the face was finished, the head would be rolled in charcoal and hung over a fire to harden. This was done to keep the muzak inside the head and prevent it from doing any haunting. Finally, after all that, you would have a finished tonsa. Tsansa. Tsansa. <laughs> When Europeans first discovered these shrunken heads in the late 19th century, stories began to spread like wildfire, and these artifacts became collectible items. These tribal people began to trade these shrunken heads with the Europeans for guns and knives. The demand was so high, prices as high as $300, which would have been a lot back then, that the Javaro began to kill more people than they usually did in order to make more heads. <laughs> They had a hustle going. Heck, some people even made counterfeit shrunken heads, and today, 80% of shrunken heads in museums and private collections are believed to be counterfeit. Interesting, right? 
The next thing, since, you know, my mind goes down these rabbit holes of wondering and thinking, I thought back to an anthropology class in which I learned about mortuary feasts and mortuary rites. There are some rituals in which these people would actually take part in consuming their dead. And I'm not going to get real detailed. Well, maybe I will, but we're going to go over this and maybe here's your, um, here's your trigger warning. If you're, if cannibalism really freaks you out, you might not want to listen to the next 30 minutes or so, but this is something that really fascinates me. So I'm going to continue. We're going to talk about the mortuary rites of the South Four and the Kuru. Now Kuru is a rare, incurable, and fatal neurodegenerative disorder It was common among the four people of Papua New Guinea. It is a transmissible spongiform encephalopathy. They call it TSE. It's caused by the transmission of abnormally folded proteins, which are called prions, which lead to symptoms such as tremors and loss of coordination from neurodegeneration. The term kuro derives from the fora word kuria or guria to shake due to the body tremors that are a symptom. It's also known as the laughing sickness due to the pathologic bursts of laughter, which are a symptom of the disease. It is widely accepted that Kuru was transmitted among the members of the Fora tribe of Papua New Guinea via funerary cannibalism. This is where deceased family members were traditionally cooked and eaten, and it was thought to help free the spirit of the dead. Women and children usually consumed the brain, the organ in which the infectious prions were most concentrated, thus allowing for transmission of this disease. Therefore, it was more prevalent among women and children. When the foray people stopped consuming the human meats in the 1960s, it was first speculated to be transmitted via endocannibalism. The disease lingered due to Kuru's long incubation period of anywhere from 10 to 50 years. The epidemic finally declined sharply after half a century, from 200 deaths per year to, in 1957 to no deaths from at least 210 onwards, with sources disagreeing on whether the last known Kuru victim died in 2005 or 2009. Okay, we're going to quickly go through the four tribes' ceremony of their ritualistic mortuary feast and kind of the cosmology of what their belief was. This is pretty gruesome yet very interesting. So their land was called Bajina, 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 (laughs) in the four language. It is the earth. It is alive. Once the Bajina had finished creating the landscape, it created the Imani, who are the guardians of the clans. The clans Imani consisted of the mountain, lake, pine, and palm grove, and a cave that led to the Kuala Nanda Munde. Kuala Nanda Munde. After a person's death, the souls of the person travel across the land bidding farewell to the Bajina Bajina, and the clans Amani before continuing their journey to the Kulanandamundi, the home of the ancestors. A person has five souls, the Ama, the Auma, the Ama, the Quela, the Aona, and the Yaseji. They depart from the body on the last breath, but only the Auma departs immediately to the land of the dead. Now, the body's laid at a sepulcher, and the family will provide it food and water to provide sustenance for the Ama on its journey, or Aoma. The Aoma then has to wait for the Ama, the bones, and the Quela, the flesh, to arrive before it can be reborn as an ancestor. So this is where the rest of the tribe comes in. 
The family have to complete these obsequies, basically tasks, and avenge the death of the deceased if enemies are held responsible. When the deceased body was eaten out of love and grief, the ama would give blessings to those who ate, and the blessings increased their aona. After the mortuary rites have been completed, the ama departs to Kulanadamundi. Aona is the deceased person's abilities, and they remain with the ama until it's passed on to the favorite child of the deceased. The quela is the pollution for the, from the decomposition of the flesh and the blood and the body. The quela travels on the wind as a cloud of pollution in the form of a man and harms the family members if the obsequies are not conducted properly. If a body was placed on a platform or in a basket, it had to be far from human habitation as the quela would become immensely powerful as the body decomposed. If the body was buried, the quela was less dangerous as the pollution was contained in the burial pit. If the body was eaten, the quela remained in the wombs of the female affines called anagra during the period of decomposition to contain its dangerous effects as it would not harm people with the same blood. Yaseji is found on the skin of the living and stays with the quela until it is passed on to one of the children of the deceased before the quela departs to the <laughs> quelana da mundi. Yaseji is a person's occult power that in the past made him a great warrior and a powerful sorcerer. By performing these tasks with the right motivation, the family ensures that the souls are recycled within the family or become an ancestor, all of which will assist the living. Now, the methods of disposal are very intricate. They could be disposed by burial, by placing them in a basket or on a platform in a bamboo or yellow sugar cane grove, or by transumption, which is the most common method. That's when they're, they place their bodies in sepultures, and they were often removed and eaten out of love. The dying person would normally express their wishes as to wishes as to how they want their body to be disposed of. Otherwise, the family would decide. In the Kuru-affected region, all methods of disposal involved being eaten. If the body was buried, it was eaten by worms. If it was placed on a platform, it was eaten by maggots. The foray believed, I think it's four, but foray, this tribe believed it was much better than the body was eaten by people who loved the deceased than by worms and insects. By eating the dead, they were able to show their love and express their grief. The ritual allowed the Aona and the Yaseji to be recycled within the family and for the loved ones to receive the blessings from the Ama. By performing the obsequies correctly, the relatives ensured that the souls of the deceased departed to Quilanana da Munde, and the deceased was born, reborn as an ancestor. After the death, the family and relatives would mourn over the body for about two to three days, and if it was to be eaten, it was taken on a stretcher to a bamboo, sugarcane, or a casarina grove. The body was laid on a bed of edible greens on a tapa cloth placed on banana leaves. It was to ensure that when the body was cut up, nothing was lost on the ground as this would have been disrespectful to the deceased. And the quela might harm the family members in anger. The body would be divided. The anagra would give the head to the deceased of the anatu. Those are the female agnates. When requested and sometimes the right arm. The Senor Anagra was in charge of cutting the body, and other elderly Anagra assisted her as, being old, their aona was already waning, so the polluting effect from the body would not pose a danger to them or their elderly husbands. The women debarred the children from being at the place of the event. Babies were kept at least three to four meters away, as the quela might harm them. As the body was cut up, the pieces of meat were put in piles for each recipient on a breadfruit leaf or a banana leaf, and the bones of the corresponding parts placed on top. 
When the torso was about to be cut open, the older women formed a wall around the body using their bark cape so that the younger women and children did not see the intestines and the genitals when they were removed. Once the body was divided up, the Inagra cleaned their hands with banana skins, sugarcane, or bamboo shoots. Fibers were then used to clean the fingernails, and the juice helped to remove the blood. Finally, women would wipe their hands on their grass skirts or bark capes. The cleaning materials were then burnt on the fire, because remember, no, no part of them should touch the floor or remain of this earth, really. They then would shove the strips of meat with wild ferns into bamboo containers and wipe their hands on wild ferns that were placed in the same bamboo cylinders. These tubes were then cooked on one fire, and each Inagra emptied half the content of her tubes into a communal plate made of banana leaves. The meat on this pile was then used to feed the Aname, who were the women from the nearby communities who came to share of the grief of the family. And these women were fed pieces of meat directly into their mouths on the end of a sharpened stick, so they could not actually touch the meat. This was to protect the women from the quela that might harm a woman if her husband had offended the deceased when he was alive. The women would chew the wesa leaves on their way home to purify their mouths. The Anagra and Anaso would eat their portions with their daughters, daughters-in-law, and their children. The Anatu, daughters-in-law, daughters and sisters of the deceased, and their children normally ate the head at the same time, but occasionally it was eating the, eaten the following day. If the head was eaten on the same day, half the content of the bamboo tubes of the Anatu was put into the communal pile for the Aname. When the body was eaten, the quela of the deceased entered the wombs of the Nagra, Anagra and remained there until Aluana was performed. Some of these, I don't even know what they are, but I'm pretty much, I pretty much think I got it. Though the widow received the genitals and the intestines, which were not suitable to share with the Aname, so she shared these with other female relatives. During the night, any remaining meat was taken to the widow's house and shared among the women who remained there during the night to share in the grief of the widow and other family members. The bones were hung up in old bylums in the house, and the head, too, if it had already not been eaten. In the morning, the women would took, take any remaining meat, the bones and the stones, from a river bed to a fireplace, which had been used the previous day, to cook the body. Concave stones were placed on the ground containing a breadfruit leaf and a wild grass called igaji. The bones were placed on this with more igaji on top and then crushed using with another stone. This technique was used to ensure that none of the bone was lost during the process, as it was important that the whole body was consumed. Once the bones and grass were placed in bamboo tubes, cooked and eaten. Sometimes the ashes from the bamboo utensils were mixed with wild green vegetables and eaten to ensure the whole body was consumed. So literally they were eating the ashes. Make sure that the, the bones were completely consumed. The exceptions were the jawbone and the collarbones, which were normally kept and worn by women in memory of the deceased, and by men as a portal to request help from the ama of the deceased. In the evening, the women returned to the widow's house and continued to eat the body until it was all consumed. This is a lot of work, guys. A lot of work. Once the body had been eaten, a feast called Isosoana, a feast to those who mourned, for those who mourned, was prepared and the women in the widow's house were allowed to take part in the purification ritual called Pepatakina. The steaming leaves from the earth oven used to pre prepare the Isosoana were placed at the doorway of the hut. And as the women left, they passed through the steam, which purified their bodies. And this ritual was a, was made it to where the women could move around the community so they could assist with the other tasks. The following day, the women caught rats in their gardens and men hunted possums. When they had enough animals, the women performed a ritual in the widow's house called Ayundu, 
during which the animals were put on the fire so that their fur and fat were burned. It was believed that the smell would remove any of the quela from the women. Another ritual started called kavunda after the body had been eaten, which means eating wild greens. This lasted for several weeks during which the relatives and friends would come and stay with the family to share their grief and bring them food. As most of the family's food had been used up to feed the guests, they now ate a poor diet of wild ferns, grasses, and other wild plants. Kavunda was also a purification ritual as the wild vegetables were symbolic of the wild land the dead called Quelaananda Munde and informed the Quela and Ama that they would soon be deporting to the wild land of their ancestors. The final obsequy was Agon Agona, and this was a substantial payment that could take several years to prepare. And that would be the final departing of the rest of the soul. The brain contained the most infectious agent, and as its consumption was largely responsible for the transmission of Kuru. The head of the deceased was placed over a fire to burn off the hair, and then it was defleshed with a bamboo knife. A hole was made at the top of the skull using a stone, and the brain was gradually removed by one of the older women whose hands would be wrapped in ferns. The tissue was then mixed with ferns and placed in bamboo tubes, normally two or three, and cooked. It was believed that the brain tissue would stop children from growing properly, so the children were not meant to eat it. However, this rule was enforced in some areas, but not in others. Indeed, some participants held the belief that the brain was good for the growth of some children. The brain was considered a delicacy, and the the children would demand some from their mothers, who naturally indulged them out of love. Males over the age of six never consumed brain tissue, but females of all ages in the majority of the Saufori communities consumed it. Sometimes the Anatu would share half of the cooked brain with the Aname to ensure that the Quela departed to Quelananda Mundi and the deceased became a complete ancestor. The entire body had to be eaten, and for this reason, the women ensured that the brain was all eaten. It was never rubbed on their bodies, which would have been disrespectful to the dead. A quick little blurb from the scholar blogs from Emory EDU. They talk about that the rituals always began with a smoking ceremony. This is to drive away their spirit. In order to do this, they smoke they smoke in the deceased home. Next, they paint okra in places the deceased lived and put up a flag to mark the deceased has died. There is another ceremony called the death ceremony. The body is left inside the deceased homes while mourners celebrate it before it is wrapped up and placed on a platform where it will decompose as opposed to a tomb or a coffin. Instead of mourning the deceased in sadness, they feast and celebrate with singing and dancing. Another interesting part of mortuary rituals among the aboriginal people in Australia They avoid saying the name of the dead or depicting them in photos or films. According to ancient law, saying or depicting a dead person's name would disturb their spirit. As can be seen from their mortuary rituals, driving the deceased spirit away is incredibly important. Therefore, disturbing the spirit would be just as harmful. They believe in the rebirth of the soul. Therefore, driving the spirit onward to its next life is crucial. Upon reading about these burial practices, it became apparent that many of their rituals are similar to other cultures we discussed in this article. Mortuary rituals are extremely important to these cultures, and while they may seem obscure in Western cultures, their practice holds a crucial role in their society. Many of these cultures interact with the deceased in a way that allows for celebration. The burial and funerary practices take precedence over many of the other rites of passages in these cultures. In contrast to our society, mortuary rituals aren't even thought about usually until someone has died. Very interesting. Thoughtco.com talks about, there's all different kinds of cannibalism. I didn't know this. There's endocannibalism. Refers to the consumption of members of one's group. 
Exocannibalism, it refers to the consumption of outsiders. Mortuary cannibalism, which we just read about, takes part as a funerary rite and can be practiced as a form of affection, an act of renewal and reproduction. Warfare cannibalism is the consumption of enemies, which can be in part honoring brave opponents or exhibiting power over the defeated. And then there's survival cannibalism, which is consumption of weaker individuals under conditions of starvation. There are other other recognized but less studied categories, including medicinal, which involves the ingestion of human tissue for medical purposes, technological, including cadaver-derived drugs from pituitary glands for human growth hormone, auto-cannibalism, eating parts of oneself, including hair and fingernails. Ew! Placentophagy, which a lot of women practice, is when the mother consumes her newborn baby's placenta. This is still done today. And innocent cannibalism, is, which is when a person is unaware that they are eating human flesh. Holy shit, I'm wondering, has that ever happened to any of us? God, I hope not. That's like the Soylent Green. It's people! <laughs> okay, let's get serious. Cannibalism is often characterized as part of the darker side of humanity, along with rape, enslavement, infanticide, incest, and mate desertion. All of those traits are ancient parts of our history, which are associated with violence and the violation of modern social norms. Western anthropologists have cl- attempted to explain the occurrence of cannibalism, beginning with the French philosopher Michel de Montaigne's <laughs> 1580 essay on cannibalism, seeing it as a form of cultural relativism. Polish anthropologist Bronislaw Malinowski declared that everything in human society had a function, including cannibalism. British anthropologist E.E. Evans Pritchard saw cannibalism as fulfilling a human requirement for meat. American anthropologist Marshall Salins saw cannibalism as one of several practices that developed as a combination of symbolism, ritual, and cosmology. And Austrian psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud saw it as a reflective of underlying psychoses. Serial killers throughout history, including Richard Chase, committed acts of cannibalism. American anthropologist Shirley Lindenbaum's extensive compilation of explanations from 2004 include Dutch anthropologist Johada Verips, who argues that cannibalism may as well be a deep-seated desire in all humans and the accompanying anxiety about about it in us even today. The cravings for cannibalism in modern days are met by movies, books, music, as substitutes for our cannibalistic tendencies. The remnants of cannibalistic rituals could also said to be found in explicit references such as the Christian Eucharist, in which worshippers consume ritual substitutes of the body and blood of Christ. Ironically, the early Christians were called cannibals by the Romans because of the Eucharist, while the Christians called the Romans cannibals for roasting their victims at the stake. This is really interesting. We're going to continue. Post-colonial studies suggest that some of the stories of cannibalism by missionaries, administrators, and adventurers, as well as allegations by neighboring groups, were politically motivated derogatory or ethnic stereotypes. Some skeptics still view cannibalism as a never having happened, a product of European imagination, and a tool of the empire, with its origins in the disturbed human psyche. The common factor in the history of cannibal allegations is the combination of denial in ourselves and attribution of it to those we wish to defame, conquer, and civilize. But as Lindenbaum quotes Claude Rawson, in these egalitarian times, we are in double denial. 
Denial about ourselves has been extended to denial on behalf of those we wish to rehabilitate and acknowledge as our equals. Recent molecular studies have suggested, however, that all of us were cannibals at one time. Truth bomb! The genetic propensity that makes a person resistant to prion disease, also known as transmissible spongiform encephalopathies, <laughs> which we already went over, is a propensity that most humans have, may have resulted in ancient human consumption of human brains. And this in turn makes it likely that cannibalism was once a very widespread human practice indeed. More recent identification of cannibalism is based primarily on the recognition of butchering marks on human bones, the same kinds of butchering marks, long bone breakage for marrow extraction, cut marks and chop marks resulting from skinning, defleshing, and evisceration, and marks left by chewing, as that's seen on animals prepared for meals. Evidence of cooking in the presence of human bone and coprolites, which is fossilized feces, have also been used to support a cannibalism hypothesis. Maybe next week we'll go into the folklore of giants, because that could explain a lot of those butchering marks and bone breakages and chewing marks. It's a very interesting topic. I hope I didn't disturb you too much. That's what we got. Our guest spot this week is my first subscription to a Patreon account. It is an organization called Program Black. You can find the link below in the description box. And it is run by Terry Miles. He is out of London. He is a street medic and a urban survivalist. All things fun, very intelligent. Go check it out. I mean, if you're into Patreon and you want to, you know, fan back a group who's creating videos, creating podcasts, go check them out. Program Black, patreon.com, Program Black. There's a fan landing site. Go support them. I'm going to read a little excerpt from their landing page. It says, The Program Black Project is, in essence, a new way to look at the prepper and survivalist lifestyle. This idea will be focused on the fall of the Western world and the fact that we are in the midst of a collapse that we so many fear. This is it. The writing is on the wall. But is that a good thing or a bad thing? We'll have to look at the trends and emerging paths that could lead us to an amazing future or a very dark one. Join us, fellow preppers and survivalists, truthers and conspiracy theorists. Let's dive into the future and see where we exist on the spectrum of the next phase of our existence. Wahahaha. That's it. That's our guest spot this week. Kind of, you know, playing with the idea of having like an actual guest and doing an interview. So maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll get some kooky, kooky characters and start talking to people on the podcast. I will let you know. Until then, we're going to keep doing the same old thing. Let us just go ahead and move into our quick little segue into Inward Survival School of Magic. I wanted to talk about visualization meditation. Pulled a couple articles that really highlight this and they're linked below. It gives you step-by-step on how to do that. So maybe team up with a friend or a partner and have them read out the instructions for you while you practice this meditation. But we're going to go into some of the benefits and kind of how to do it and the different kinds of visualization meditations you can do. So basically visualization is a mindfulness technique that you can use to enhance your regular meditation. Adding visualization into your meditation allows you to better direct your relaxed mind towards specific outcomes you'd like to see. It's linked to many potential health benefits, including increased athletic performance, 
relief of anxiety and depression, improved relaxation, greater compassion for yourself and others, pain relief, improved ability to cope with stress, improved sleep, greater emotional and physical wellness, and increased self-confidence. Adding visualization to your meditation or mindfulness practice is the bomb diggity. There are five techniques to get you started. The first one is color breathing. This is a technique that can help you with stress relief and general mood improvement. You basically want to think of something you want to bring into yourself. This could be a specific emotion or just a vibe. Assign this feeling a color. Just choose a color that you like that you would find soothing and you would focus on that. Like I said, it's linked below. If you want step-by-step instructions, go ahead and look at the article. The next one is compassion meditation. This is a loving kindness meditation. This can help you foster feelings of compassion and kindness towards yourself and others. This can be helpful if you're dealing with feelings of intense animosity towards somebody and you're looking for ways to forgive. I think we've talked about this before. I'm kind of having some deja vu, but let's just move on. (laughs) Uh, Progressive muscle relaxation. This can help ease stiff or tight muscles, which might help you experience, it might help you get through the experience of anxiety and stress. Relaxing your muscles can relieve physical and emotional tension, improving your mood and helping you get better sleep. Next would be guided imagery. Go to your happy place. Basically, it's that. This technique can help you visualize positive scenes and images, which can help you relax, cope with stress or fear, feel more at peace. It's also a great way to boost your mood or unwind before bed. I will actually share one. I, I use this quite regularly. Whenever I have that worry or that fear that, you know, something's going to happen to my kids, you know, something to disrupt the natural order because I'm supposed to die before my kids. So the whole idea that anything could happen to my children before I leave this earth absolutely terrifies me. So to soothe myself, I imagine myself on my deathbed and my children are both grown adults and they are there with me, helping me move into death. So that is a comforting thought, believe it or not, for me. Next would be goal visualization. This is a good one. Sometimes your brain, actually, most of the time, it cannot tell the difference between something you've imagined and something that's actually happened. That's why visualization works. When you visualize yourself achieving goals, your brain may eventually believe you've actually done these things and it can help you feel more confident. It can help create new pathways in your brain over time. It's called neuroplasticity. You visualize yourself getting a promotion at work. You feel excited and thrilled about it. This image can help your brain start associating optimism and other positive feelings with the thought of a promotion instead of feeling insecure about your chances of moving up. Goal visualization works kind of the same way as guided imagery, but instead of creating a scene in your imagination, visualize a specific moment of achieving your goal. Next article is liveboldandbloom.com. It says that visualization alone cannot magically make things happen. Visualization is a tool to strengthen your resolve and motivation to succeed. This gives you a mental freedom and clarity to empower yourself with your goals and your intentions, and it strengthens neural pathways involved in actually achieving your goal, even when you aren't physically taking the actions involved. It is a way to practice seeing yourself do something before you actually do it. Feeling these emotions that are associated to with accomplishing that goal is a very powerful tool. So get out there and imagine yourself doing things. Our stoic thought of the week goes to the great Socrates. 
He said, Falling down is not a failure. Failure comes when you stay where you have fallen. Awareness of ignorance is the beginning of wisdom. And, Most people, including ourselves, live in a world of relative ignorance. We are even comfortable with that ignorance because it is all we know. When we first start facing truth, the process may be frightening and many people run back to their old lives. But if you continue to seek truth, you will eventually be able to handle it better. In fact, you want more. It's true that many people around you now may think you are weird or even a danger to society, but you don't care. Once you've tasted truth, you won't ever want to go back to being ignorant. Everyone have a wonderful week and thank you for joining me. See you next week. Bye.